Welcome to the Traveling On Radio Show, your premier source for travel news and information, featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, the Traveling On Radio Show. Well, hello everybody. Greetings from Vancouver, and thank you for joining us today on the Traveling On Radio Show. We're your hosts, Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick, and we are still in Vancouver for the 2010 Winter Olympic Games. And uh, we've been traveling between Vancouver and Whistler over the last week, and we'll be introducing you to a lot of interesting people during the next hour. But as you can hear from the noise in the background, we are in the heart of activity at Vancouver's Robson Square, uh, where we stand underneath the urban zip line and right next to the ice skating rink. And I think I hear a lot of little girls che- uh, cheering on the, uh, on, on the ice there. There's uh, certainly always something going on here because our media center is located here. We are always in the middle of many activities. And this coming week, we plan to travel to the NBC Broadcast Center on Grouse Mountain and hang out with folks from the the, uh, Today Show. But for now, we have a lot of great people to introduce you to, and we're excited to introduce you to a lot of wonderful people that we've met during our first week in, uh, in here in British Columbia for the uh, 2010 Winter Olympic Games. This has been an incredible experience, and we've met a lot of interesting people and have uncovered some interesting stories behind the 2010 Winter Olympic Games. First, you'll meet Doug Nieslaus and Vicki Jackson, two individuals who work tirelessly on efforts to save two endangered species, the spirit bear and the marmot both of whom are mascots for the Winter Olympics. Then you'll meet a few new friends from our day in Whistler, the King of Norway, and the Snow Angels, who are spreading love and joy throughout. While in Whistler, we also had the pleasure of meeting downhill skier Kwame the Snow Leopard, the only member of the Ghana Olympic team. You'll hear how this Olympic hopeful has overcome many challenges to fulfill his Olympic dream. Finally, we'll introduce you to this month's travel angel, Joyce Major, and you'll hear what inspired her to walk away from the corporate world to travel the globe as a volunteer. Well, you know, I don't know what these little girls are chanting back here, but they're having a good time, and uh, as you guys can hear, and as you've also heard, we will be changing our name next month to World Footprints. And although our name is changing, our show will remain the same. We'll continue to celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage, and we invite you to join us in leaving positive footprints as we travel the globe. The spirit bear, the magical white black bear, has significant meaning to the aboriginal people of British Columbia. Only 400 are known to exist in the wild, and one of the mascots of these games, Miga, part bear, part killer whale, is connecting the spirit bear to the people of the world. Doug Nieslaus of Spirit Bear Adventures shares the real-life story of the magical spirit bear. There is an initiative um, among the aboriginal people to uh, protect the spirit bear. And Doug, I just wanted to ask you, first off, what is a spirit bear? Some people may think it's uh, kind of a mystical uh, creature, but what exactly is the spirit bear? Um, well, the spirit bear is, is definitely magical. Uh, <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, for my people, it's a very important symbol for our community. And it's, it's basically, it's a white black bear. Um, it only occurs in, a, in our around our area about one in ten. Uh, one in ten black bears are white and uh, the highest concentration is, is found uh, directly in the central coast and we call it the Great Bear Rainforest. So, mm. 
Uh, so uh, this is the highest concentration in this area, but but the um, the spirit bear, the white black bear, is found in in other areas around North America mostly. Yeah, mostly up. In, I mean, uh, it's, stories I've heard that they've been uh, spotted as far as uh, Alaska, the tip of Panhandle, Alaska, down as far as Minnesota. Um, which is again very rare. The spirit bear itself is very rare. There's only they only estimate there's about 400 total uh, spirit bears. Um, a large part of them, the highest concentration of spirit bear is found on an island called Princess Royal Island, and uh, it's estimated there there's about uh, 800 to 1,000 bears, and about 10% of those are whites, roughly 100 white bears. Um, so, uh, yeah, they're they're very rare bears. And what brings you here during the Olympics uh, to to talk about the the spirit bear? Well, we. Uh, I mean, this is uh, the biggest party Canada's going to have. So we're here uh, both to uh, promote uh, our tourism as well as create more awareness around spirit bears and uh, talk about some other issues that, are, uh, uh, that we're facing on the coast. Uh, example, hunting. Talk a little bit about the, the hunting parties uh, that, that, that take place and the, the threat to the spirit bear. Well, I should say, uh, you know, our community has been very proactive in trying to uh, protect spirit bears. Uh, you know, certainly we have a designated or the only spirit bear conservancy in the world. Um, so it's a large track, and we protected 40% of our territory, uh, and that is uh, all, all for, you know, most of it for spirit bear or bear habitat. And uh, so we've done very well. However, there's still other issues uh, on the hunt that, uh, you know, there's still uh, black bear hunting that is allowed. And, uh, you know, which is, uh, it doesn't go well for the spirit bear. I mean, both parents have to have a recessive gene in order to produce the white bear. So every time you shoot a black bear, you're potentially shooting a bear that's carrying the recessive gene to produce it. And uh, you could be just shooting a white bear um, that, you know, we could have uh, the following season. So Are there other challenges that affect the procreation, I suppose, of the spirit bear or any other uh, preservation challenges that you face? Well, no, I think our community has been, uh, again, very proactive in terms of setting uh, large tracks of uh, land the side. Um, I know a large 33% of the coast back in 2006 was protected. Uh, um, so I, I think things are uh, certainly getting better. Certainly the hunting has been the biggest challenge, uh, both uh, uh, the trophy hunt as well as now resident hunt. We're starting to get even uh, more uh, BC people or Canadian people coming and, uh, and hunting. And, uh, you know, to me, it just, um, it, you're going to make way more money viewing bears than you will hunting a bear. And, uh, uh, to me, you know, the fact that it still happens today's day and age when, uh, you know, uh, the majority of British Columbians don't support it, uh, and, you know, how it can still continue, uh, you know, I don't know. Um, you know, so I just think we still have to uh, create awareness and, uh, you know, create the, uh, the, you know, just give people um, some education on it and, and then let people make the choice. And uh, hopefully our government will follow, uh, uh, you know, what people have to say. Can you share a little bit of the legend of the spirit bear? Yeah, um, in our culture, uh, the raven is the creator. Uh, we call him Gooey. And uh, so Gooey is the creator of the world, and uh, he also created the Ice Age. And as the ice started to melt, uh, the raven wanted something to remind himself of the Ice Age, so he made every tenth black bear white, and he set them on Princess Royal Island, and uh, that would be their home and protected for all time, and there they could live in peace. And uh, yeah, that's one of the stories that was recorded and passed on from my elders, and uh, the story is uh, hundreds, if not thousands of years old. And Doug, for those who may want to uh, join in your efforts to help protect the spirit bear, some of your conservation and preservation efforts, where can they go to learn more? Well, I think there's a lot of different sources. Uh, certainly, uh, we have our website, spiritbear.com, and uh, you know, it's uh, our tourism is not just uh, you know a tourism operation. Where it's really uh, it's about conservation, and we understand that we live there, and uh, you know, we we've always looked at ourselves as stewards of our of our territory, and we have to protect it. So. Uh, we don't want to do something that's going to be destructive. And uh, to us, tourism is a, is a good example. We were creating some employment without any resource extraction. 
Um, so uh, we also, uh, you know, do we have the Spirit Bear Conservancy there and uh, a lot of different uh, groups, um, Pacific Wild, also uh, have done a lot of great work in terms of protection of the Spirit Bear. The Spirit Bear Youth Coalition, uh, you have the Vihala Wilderness Society, a um, lo- lot of great people that have done some great work. Uh, but uh, one of the, the uh, I guess really the whole coast, the coast is one group called Coastal First Nations or Turning Point um, that have done uh, some great work. Um, I think they call themselves the Great Bear Initiative uh, now and... Uh, so they've done some some good stuff. So uh, go to um, to Great Bear Initiative, uh, and and they should have some information as well. Doug Nieslos, thank you so much for joining us today, and have fun at the Olympics. No, okay. Well, thank you uh, for having. As we go to break, we'll introduce you to the King of Norway, who cheered on his countrymen at the biathlon final at the Whistler Olympic Park. Well, this has been a wonderful day in Whistler Olympic Park as we watch the uh, female biathletes. And uh, I'm standing here with a man who is representing totally his nation and, uh, and carrying that country pride uh, because his, his person took first place, got the gold medal, Tora Berger. What is your name? I am the king of Norway. <laughs> well, shall I bow? No, just smile. <laughs> How am I doing on the smiling? Very good. You enjoying yourself here? I'm enjoying very much because this is actually my ninth Olympic Games, summer and winter, and uh, this, in my view, is one of the best because the Canadian people are so friendly yes. and nice, and and uh, we we kind of have a connection because so uh, during the Second World War. We had a little Norway camp in Ottawa. So there was 2,500 Norwegians there, training as a pilots. So the connections between Canada and Norway is very good. Merci beaucoup. How do you know this? Because you only look 29 years old, so you, you're going back to the war. I mean, how would a 29-year-old young man look, know about this? Because I'm, <laughs> I am very interested in history and culture. So when I go to the Olympic cities, I always read about it before, and I go looking around. Oh, well, it... Your but, but, but your your listeners now, they will have one question. Yes. There is nine cities. Begin with the letter S. That have arranged summer or winter Olympic games. Nine cities. Nine cities. Beginning with letter S. Squaw Valley. One. Sarajevo. Two. Sephora. Uh, three. Salt Lake City. Four. Sochi. That's not yet. No, no, it's in 2014. So nine up until this point. Yes. Oh, gotcha. Um, and and, and whilst, whilst you're here, who, who, who are you and where are you from? Uh, I'm uh, Jerry Burke. I'm from outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I'm here because my nephew, Tim Burke, will be... Uh, competing and uh, my godson in the biathlon, the men's fi- in the men's final. Yes, yeah, yeah. so we have high hopes for Tim. He's from upstate New York, uh, and I'm. And I know him. You know him. You're the Majesty. You know he knows everybody. Every, he knows all the biath. The Europeans know. 
the biathletes like we know NFL players and NBA players and things like that. So Tim could like walk around in Lake Placid and people might not know him, but in Europe they do know him. So if you walk around in Oslo, everyone knows him. <laughs> uh, well, we're just down the street from you in Washington, D.C. That's right. We've had a lot of snow. I mean, we've yes. had as much snow here. I mean, more Last snow year. back home. I know. So. I know. Well, uh, good, best of luck to your nephew. And Thank you. When we come back, we'll learn more about marmots, represented by the Olympic mascot, Muckmuck, as the Traveling On radio show continues from Robson Square in the heart of Vancouver. Hi, my name's Jennifer Jones. I'm from the UK, um, and I'm in Vancouver for the 2010 Winter Olympic Games. I love the Traveling On radio show, and I listen to it online. Health officials are concerned about a new influenza virus of swine origin that's spreading from person to person. Officials are acting to combat this threat, but the outbreak could grow. Prepare now. Check with local leaders, schools, employers, and other community groups about their plans regarding an outbreak in your community. It's important for everyone to know what to do about swine flu. For details, visit www.cdc.gov slash swine flu or call 1-800-CDC-INFO. A message from HHS. This is President Barack Obama. In the story of America, the greatest chapters are moments of challenge, when we see people serving their country and one another, volunteers who step forward into hospital corridors and church basements, along levees and fire lines. And the next chapter is yours to help write. Sign up to volunteer at usaservice.org. That's usaservice.org. Let's renew America together. A message from Renew America Together, brought to you by the Ad Council. With great privilege comes great responsibility. Carter Fleming, Community Center Volunteer. The giving spirit is as passionate in the boomers today as it was in our 20s, and we as a generation can still impact our country. Lead, inspire, change the world again. Join thousands and find which volunteer opportunity is best for you. Call 1-800-424-8867 today or visit www.getinvolved.gov. This message is brought to you by the Corporation for National and Community Service in this station. This is the Travelin' On Radio Show, bringing you a world of travel news and information. Once again, let's join your hosts, Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Hi, my name is Anna. I'm from Romania, and I'm in Vancouver for the Winter Olympics. Travel On Radio Show is my favorite. Earlier, we shared the story of the Spirit Bear. Another ambassador of these games is Mukmuk, a marmot mascot of the games. Marmots have been teetering on the brink of extinction, but thanks to the efforts of the Marmot Recovery Foundation, marmots are making a comeback. Vicki Jackson, executive director of the foundation, joins us to talk about the recovery efforts of this special animal. Ian and I are sitting on uh, the shores of North Vancouver uh, with a lovely view of downtown Vancouver skyline with our next guest, Vicki Jackson, who is the executive director of the Marmot Recovery Foundation. Welcome, Vicki. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to have you guys here visiting. Well, you know, this is one of our favorite places, so <laughs> we're very happy to be here. And for those of you who've watched the Olympics and uh, have enjoyed uh, the Olympics this year in Vancouver, um, you will have noticed that one of the mascots of the Olympics is the uh, marmot. And uh, Vicki is joining us today to talk a little bit about uh, the marmot and some of the uh, conservation challenges and just how the marmot actually was represented during the Olympics. Tell us a little bit about uh, how the marmot came to be uh, selected 
uh, as a mascot for the Olympics and some of the awareness issues that you wanted to be uh, bring to the forefront of um, the international community's uh, consciousness? Well, I think uh, the Vancouver Island Marmot makes an excellent um, mascot or ambassador for Canada because it is a recovery program uh, for endangered species that is actually working extremely well. And it was really brought down. They were very close to the brink of extinction in 2003. And uh, it really has been yeoman efforts by a huge group of people working together uh, to bring them back to where they are now. Um, They're not recovered yet, but they are safe from extinction. And uh, the numbers are going up in the wild. So I think they're a very good representative of what happens when people work together to save an endangered species. And how, uh, I know on, um, on Vancouver Island, uh, the foundation itself is, is housed where the, uh, the, most of the population of marmots are, uh, are live on the island. Um, how many are, do we have in the wild and, and how many in captivity? Well, the Vancouver Island marmot, first of all, is uh, uniquely Canadian. It's the only Canadian marmot that we have. There are four other marmot species, in, uh, four in total marmot species in Canada, but the Vancouver Island marmot is uniquely ours. So the population did go down to about 30 in the wild in 2003. We've now rebuilt that population in the wild up to between uh, 240 and 260 in the wild now. Uh, Last year, we had uh, 68 pups born in the wild, and as recently as 2007, there was only, um, I think, three litters uh, that um, totaled about seven pups in the wild. So it's really a big increase. Now, this recovery of of the numbers is very recent. It took a long time to get the captive breeding up to a point where we're able to put enough animals out to be able to affect those kinds of changes, but uh, it, it does seem to be heading in the right direction. How uh, has the, um, the marmot uh, muckmuck been embraced by the, the world community? And, and certainly I know he is, uh, I've seen a lot of uh, stuffed animals um, running around, muckmucks running around, uh, lots of children and adults, and including myself, hopefully before we go. Um, but how has the um, uh, has Muckmuck uh, been embraced by the international community visiting here for the Olympics? Well, I think um, anything that brings attention to the uh, worldwide pr- problem of endangered species, and also this is a wonderful. Um, example of what can happen when species are even brought down to the brink of extinction and it shows that they can be brought back so I think it's really important that uh, you know people have sort of embraced this animal and then looked a little further to find out what they are and what has happened with them so it's been um, a very good response I think Muckmuck is one of the most popular of the uh, of the four. <laughs> so that has been very good. And we were lucky enough that uh, Van Ock did put our website onto the Muck Muck uh, stuffy. So we um, hope that people look a little bit further and, uh, and learn a little bit more about endangered species and particularly the Vancouver Island marmot. 
And would you like to share that website with our listeners? It's www.marmots.org, so it's very easy to remember. Um, going back to just the, the challenges and the conservation issues, what really led to the endangerment of the species? Mm-hmm. There were so few animals left in the wild. That was a huge and looming question. It's very rare to have one smoking gun. It's always a very complicated issue. As we've gone forward, the only thing we could do at that point was rescue the animal and create a lifeboat through the captive breeding program to make sure the animal didn't go extinct and then start reintroducing them back and we put transmitters in them so that we know we can go and track them and we know who's surviving if they haven't survived what's happened to them and you start collecting all of that data the leading cause of death um, with Vancouver Island marmots is predation. So what we believe happened, and again, historical numbers are vague, so it's difficult to get a big picture, but what we believed happened is um, with all of the, the whole landscape changes all across the island, it threw the predator-prey dynamics out at a time that the marmots were at a naturally low uh, level in their population, so they kind of got hit between a rock and a hard place. The the predators went up because the prey levels went up, and then when the predators start to knock down the prey, they start looking for alternate species, and they hit the marmots. Marmots are not a prey species for any of the, the major predators on the island. They're opportunistic kills when they're up there looking for elk or deer or rabbits or whatever. So, um, And marmots live in metapopulations. That means they have little communities of, of colonies. And the, the basic premise of a, of a metapopulation is that they go through natural fluctuations. So we're, be, we're beginning to think that the metapopulations were probably at a low when the predators were very high and they just got hit too hard to recover. So now that we're able to get the animals back, the big question was, has the predator-prey dynamics changed enough to recover the species? And what we're finding, our first our first um, attempt at a reintroduction was disastrous. We put four animals out into Green Mountain. Three of them were killed by a cougar. We brought the first one, the other one back in. So we were very discouraged. But the next time we put nine out, the next time we put more out. Now we're putting out, out last year we put um, nine, oh, how many did we do last year? I think 78 out. Um, this year we're planning on putting um, over 100 out. And what we found is as the population has come up, the predation level has not followed it. We have almost quadrupled the population in the wild since the low in 2003 and the predator um, mortality has remained around 20 or 25 animals. So we're finding that as there's more animals in these areas they're able to watch out for each other and the predation level is much much less. Well it's it's good to know on one hand I think that um, these animals uh, didn't become endangered because of human activity because of hunting um, but but well, is that correct? Well, there's definitely forest fragmentation and land usage. That has opened up an awful lot of new meadowland on Vancouver Island. And so that is why those um, prey populations do go up, because they want those meadowlands, and then naturally the predator population goes up after it. So it's all part and parcel. But it, those are surrounding land issues. We have to live with those. Um, so... 
I'll just give you a, a, an example of, you know, some people say critical habitat is the, you know, is the key keystone to recovering the species. It's not. Um, we believe that there's enough recovery habitat available to recover the species. When you look at Strathcona Park, Strathcona Park is 250,000 hectares of protected land. The marmots were completely extirpated there. There was not one colony left. So if you increase that to 600,000, would that have saved one marmot? No. So, and then you look at Mount Washington, and that is an area of, of high commercial usage. And that is the only surviving marmot colony in the, the north central region. And it is the largest contiguous um, surviving colony in the entire island. It had over 30 marmots. And the reason that it did very well, it's right smack dab in the middle of a ski resort, was the ski runs create more habitat for them, and it's kept devoid of trees like their natural habitat is. Mm -hmm. So it creates this extra habitat for them and having the people around in the summertime and in the wintertime um, keeps the predators away. So there is, a, there is a very artificial habitat that has, has actually been advantageous to the animals. Now can you talk a little bit about the, the nature of the marmot? Um, you know their their personalities, what they like to eat, are they docile creatures, um, uh, friendly creatures, or, I mean, they're wild animals, and, and, and people, I think, um, out who, who uh, we've known people who actually uh, attempt to feed wild animals, which is a no-no, uh, but are they, are they uh, docile and friendly creatures for the most part? They are very friendly and they're very curious. Um, and they also, something very interesting is the Vancouver Island marmot is a distinct species, but it's also very distinctive in its behavioral patterns. Because it has always been a fairly rare marmot, it lives in these little tiny pockets of good habitat dispersed in areas that are not good habitat. So it's there, those little colonies are dependent on other marmots coming from colony to colony to keep their bloodlines strong. So for that reason, they are very gregarious. They welcome other marmots into their midst. Rather, if you look at um, marmots that have, are open plain marmots, like uh, yellow-bellied marmot, they're very territorial. Vancouver Island marmots are not territorial. Um, and they also do really cute things, like the little ones when they're um, when they're just coming out of their burrows and getting used to each other. They box each other. They're just adorable. <laughs> so they have these little boxing mats. And we've actually recorded Vancouver Island marmot babies going on sleepovers at other marmots' uh, oh dens. So they're they're absolutely adorable. The more you get to know them, the more you fall in love with them. They are just, and they were voted at the um, marmot um, conservation. Uh, in Montreux, they had a very large um, conference there, mm -hmm. and they were voted as the most photogenic marmot out of all of the uh, 14 <laughs> marmot species in the world. So I'm pretty proud of them. Well, I'm hoping all of the parents listening will will invest in a muck muck uh, toy muck muck for their for their kids well beyond the Olympics. Um, now I know also uh, as you shared uh, with us earlier, the marmot sleeps seven months or hibernates seven months out of the year. So you really have a short window of time to to work on conservation efforts. What are some of the things that you do during that? short window of time and, and, uh, and how can um, others perhaps uh, get involved? 
We have uh, captive breeding programs that operate right across the country, so it's a national program. So we have uh, the Toronto Zoo, the Calgary Zoo, uh, Mountain View Conservation, and then our own recovery center on Mount Washington. When the marmots wake up, um, they have to, well, all of the marmots that, are, marmots that are born off island must go to the recovery center to be acclimatized, to be quarantined, um, and be prepared for release in the wild. So first of all, we have to get all of those marmots in there. Um, it's also very complicated. We're very, very careful with our breeding to ensure that we protect the genetic diversity of this animal. So we've been able to protect 90, over 96% of the genetic diversity um, through, you know, we, we mix and match our pairs to make sure that we maintain as good genetic uh, diversity as we can with the animals. And, uh, and then they have to be released, and you have to monitor who's done what and, and what pups have been born. You have to go and find those, the ones that have been killed. You have to, um, the, you can't get into a lot of the habitat without using helicopters, so you have to go and do the releases. And so it does make a very, very hectic season uh, for us. So, and it's, it's all done in, in five or six months because you want to make sure that you're there before they're up and you want to make sure that you're knowing when they go down into hibernation. So. so when is the best time for visitors to Vancouver Island to spot muckmucks, marmots out in the wild? I'm so happy to say that we can now tell people that they can go up to Mount Washington um, to the ski resort area and see marmots very easily there. Um, it, it was only recently. We have not been had any public viewing of the marmots because they were so precious and they were in absolute strict quarantine. But there are now enough animals up on the mountain and uh, so people can go up there. The best time to view them is July and August. I think that calls for a return trip. I'd love to bring you up to Haley Bowl. That's a wonderful, wonderful story because Haley Bowl was completely extirpated in over the course of two years. The whole colony collapsed and we now have um, grandparents living there. We have a whole robust colony and you must go up there. It's absolutely wonderful. I was sitting up there this last season and I was watching some of the, uh, the adults with the, the babies out and a golden eagle shadow just came flying over top of the mountain. You just felt this black presence <laughs> and this huge shriek marmot whistle just rang around the entire meadow. All of the marmots vanished, and you realized how many marmots there were up there because you could hear whistles coming from all over the place, and they kept shrieking until that eagle was gone, and the eagle knew it didn't have a chance. <laughs> so that's why the more you have, the more you have eyes watching out for predators, yes. the less of a problem it becomes. Oh, bless. Well, Vicki, thank you so much for joining us today. Vicki Jackson, the Executive Director of the uh, Marmot Recovery Foundation. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure to have you guys here, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your stay. And Ian and I are standing still at Whistler Olympic Park with the Snow Angels. Even more beautiful than Charlie's Angels, I think. And, and can you each introduce yourselves and tell us where you're from, other than heaven? I'm from Squamish, BC. Jamie? My name is Michelle, and I'm from Whistler. And my name is Kelly, and I'm from Whistler. May I say, this is one of our favorite places in the world, so we're happy to be here. Yes, thank you. And you, you're dressed so lovely with a halo of blue and green and silver and yes, spreading love with teddy bears. Compliment barrages. 
And compliment, compliment barrages. We just did your compliment barrage a minute ago. Should we do it? Would you, would you mind complimenting our radio show? We, we just love traveling on. It's quite yeah. amazing. It's the it's most incredible show that I think I've ever seen. Well, for better people to guide your possibly the best looking DJs I think I've ever seen on a radio show. I mean, they're so attractive. These two, we just they're just beautiful. I mean, they just work together. It just works. It works. It's work. Bless you guys. Thank you. <laughs> it's the best compliment we've ever had with our show. <laughs> well, thank you so much for complimenting us and, and spreading love. Thank you. Thank you. And you too. Thank you. We will continue to spread that love. Spread the love. As we continue from Robson Square, the focus of the Cultural Olympiad in Vancouver, and a lot more revelry as you can hear, we'll meet Kwame the Snow Leopard, a unique downhiller, as the Traveling On show continues from Vancouver, host of the 2010 Winter Olympics. Well, he moved early. That's going to draw the yellow flag. Offsides, number 72, five yards. Check out this fan leaving the game. He's headed straight up the middle and right into a sobriety checkpoint. Let's see how he handles it. No, officer. I haven't been drinking. I'm the designated driver. Upon further review, this fan made the right call by being a designated driver. Sign up to be the designated driver at the stadium and always buckle up. You could follow your favorite NFL team to the Super Bowl. Provided as a public service by the station at Team Coalition. Green is making sure the air in your home is healthy for your family to breathe. Testing for radon is easy. Just call 866-730-GREEN. A message from the US EPA. With great privilege comes great responsibility. Carter Fleming, Community Center Volunteer. The giving spirit is as passionate in the boomers today as it was in our 20s and we as a generation can still impact our country. Lead, inspire, change the world again. Join thousands and find which volunteer opportunity is best for you. Call 1-800-424-8867 today or visit www.getinvolved.gov. This message is brought to you by the Corporation for National and Community Service in this station. This is the Traveling On Radio Show, bringing you a world of travel news and information. Once again, let's join your hosts, Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Not only is Vancouver a remarkable physical setting for these games, but also as an emblem of the diversity of people throughout the world. Athletes of all colors, black and white, brown and yellow, have participated in these Canadian games in a way not quite seen before in a Winter Olympiad. This is the miracle of Vancouver and this Olympiad, and this has provided hope to young men and women the world over to pursue their dreams regardless of race, creed, color, or national origin. One such miracle story is that of Ghanaian Olympic downhiller Kwame Nkrumah Akampong, better known as Kwame the Snow Leopard, and here's his story. Kwame the Snow Leopard's dream to ski in these games has been six years in the making. To do so, he had to overcome a monumental mountain to get funding. I qualified. Uh, things were a bit tough, you know, finding funding was not uh, moving, you know, as fast as I, want, I wanted it to move because I needed a dream in the summer, which never happened. But I, you know, I just decided, okay, why not get the fans to be part of the whole Olympic experience? 
because um, I think people want to touch the Olympic spirit, but unless you're an athlete or you're working directly as a volunteer or you're doing something official, it's impossible to do that. So I came up with the idea of a sponsor a sport because the speed team has a lot of these kind of sports in it. And um, it was $5 and $1 given to charity. And I've got three charities I, I work with. One is uh, Snow Leopard Trust. Uh, they protect the endangered snow leopard. And the other is Sabre, which builds kindergarten schools in Ghana. And we have Snow Camp, which is uh, a charity working out of London. And they take kids from underprivileged areas in London and they take them out to France, where they teach them how to ski, life skills, get them off drugs, and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's worked fantastically. We've been able to make the suit, and it has those fans who sponsored <coughs> spots on it. So it's like, I'm not going to be the only one racing down the hill. I'm going to be racing with a, an army of people on my body. So it's uh, pretty different from maybe other ski racers. Even so, he's here on less than a tenth of what the European teams had available to them. Once I tried to find out, when I was kind of started skiing earlier, I tried to find out what did some of the big teams spend, and I got a figure of 250,000 euros per annum. Um, that is an astronomical figure. I think for us, we, in the whole, for the whole team and everything, summer training and everything, it didn't go more than 75,000 euros, I think, or pounds. But we got the figures and the spreadsheet and everything, and that was like, you know, scratching the bottom of the barrel, you know, cutting back on everything, because uh, when, I, when I first approached the, um, the Ghanaian officials, I told them that I'm prepared to do everything myself, you know, as much as possible, until I qualify for something worth, you know, funding. I've been to two world championships on my own, and I'm self-funded, and, you know, I believe that I had worked hard enough to get lots of stuff Maybe I'll see for free, but it took effort to get those things. But that's the kind of figures you're looking for, and uh, we didn't get half of the figure we we proposed. So it ended up uh, as just one uh, one month of training in Italy, and the rest has been on Mount Washington, and we are trying to take uh, as much time on the hill now as possible. Having a bootstrap operation means Kwame doesn't have the luxury of having others to pick up the slack. I've been the coach, baggage carrier, technical man, physio. When I get injured, I have to fix myself. So it's been a bit difficult and I, it's not something I want to go through again. Kwame thinks that larger ski teams should adopt smaller nations which don't have ski slopes to give them the opportunity to get better. You, have, you know, the small nations do not have huge squads. We've got like two, one, three uh, racers and or competitors in different winter sports. If, for example, Canada said, oh, we're going to take up uh, the Senegalese national team, the, the racers should join us, go through our program, spend five, ten years, you know, with us, then you are doing something that is useful because the person is maybe be skiing with the best of the best of the best instead of um, <clears throat> some of the little projects that are going on trying to get small nations to do the thing themselves. We can't. We don't have ski slopes. We, we need to get out there and ski. If I wasn't born in Scotland, there's no way I would be skiing because applying for a visa from Ghana, by the time the visa will come through, your race is over. It'll always be, be lagging behind because most big nations will not give a visa to a small nation considered to be a third world country because of all the financial comparisons and uh, you're expected to have X amount of money in your bank account, which is not feasible because currencies do not balance and 
it's, it's, it's a bunch of nonsense at the end of the day. If some of these big nations can say, you know something, it's not going to cost us uh, anything. It's, if they're eating and one extra amount is on the table, I don't think it's going to cost you know, the team a fortune. So the, the small nations are, do not outnumber the bigger nations. There are enough big nations to take up small nations and, and help us. Despite all of the obstacles he's faced, people from all over the world are pulling for him, even in some pretty unusual places. Yeah, I do have a sense. Um, I haven't opened my, my hotmail for, I think, three days. And I opened yesterday and 630-something emails. So um, I've been trying. Like, one of the ideas I had was any fan who sends an email, I'll try and respond personally. But now I'm going to be doing the boost all my evening and like, yes. Great stuff to all of you, and um, lots of them are from uh, places in you know, Africa, not only Ghana, you know, people from Cambodia, and, uh, places you don't think you know. People are listening or watching. You know, sending emails. Uh, we got the Kwame Army on Facebook, and it's just you know, it's an explosion of you know people joining. Um, and I don't know when it's gonna. Difficult to keep up with the messages, but I just try my best to say thank you to all, all those messages. With all that he's dealt with, Kwame's staying grounded, but he knows he could have accomplished more if he had more resources. I'm trying to keep my feet on the ground. Um, I am proud in terms of uh, for my family. Um, I told my wife, uh, you know, I'm going to try for this. I kind of failed the first time. Um, I'm not somebody who's not used to failure. I, 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 I keep going. I just have the mentality that if you bash at it long enough, you break the whatever down and you move. But I think I could have achieved more if I had more resources. Um, I sometimes sit down and think that it would be fantastic to have a gold medal, but I do not have the skills or the facilities to have the gold medal. Um, in most of my previous sports, I went to number one, and it's a fantastic feeling, but um, I'm never going to have that feeling in skiing. It made us, I think, or me personally, you know, then realize that, well, I've, I've actually you know, gotten as far as the Olympics, and it's a great opportunity. When we come back, you're going to meet our newest travel angel, Joyce Major. A young lady, a wonderful woman who took a year off of her life to volunteer around the world. You're listening to the Traveling On Radio Show, soon to become World Footprints. And we'll see you on the other side of this break, right from Whistler Olympic Park. Would it be crazy if you packed your bags and left for a week, a month, a year? What if you left for two years? What if you were going far away to help in a village on the edge of the Gobi Desert? To spend time with people the rest of the world only reads about? To teach children and learn a thing or two about yourself? Would that be crazy? Peace Corps. Life is calling. How far will you go? To find out more, call 1-800-424-8580 or visit peacecorps.gov. Now, more of the Traveling On Radio Show. Hi, I'm Mary Bick de la Cruz from Vancouver, British Columbia, and we're here at the Vancouver Olympics, and you're listening to the Travel On radio show. Go Canada, go! 
Imagine taking a year off from everyday life to live. That's just what today's traveling angel did. Joyce Major walked away from her comfortable life to spend an enriching year traveling the world as a volunteer. From teaching English in China to monitoring baboons in South Africa, Joyce uncovered her purpose and discovered a love for our planet and fellow citizens. Joyce joins us today to talk about her adventures and upcoming plans. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. When you decided to spend a year traveling, you left a lot behind, a career, your houseboat, your friends. Why did you decide to embark on a solo volunteer travel experience for an entire year? Um, I, I think I was figuring that um, I didn't want to keep doing what I was doing. Um, my youngest son had graduated from college, and it just seemed like it would be a really good time to just say goodbye to everything that I knew and just go after an adventure and see what I could learn. I think it was just like this perfect time um, in my life to see the world. And, and that was a very, very brave thing to do, um, you know, traveling by yourself. And, you know, and you've been really traveling as a volunteerist for, since this first adventure, how did you select your destinations for the first adventure and uh, during the course of your additional travels, how do you go about the selection process for either volunteer activity or a destination? I mean, does one or the other trump the other? Um, you, you know, the, the, for the first year, since I didn't really know what any of this was going to be like, um, I tried to do it by countries that I really wanted to go to because I hadn't done much traveling before. And I wasn't sure I'd ever travel again. I didn't know how things would turn out after my year. So I kind of was doing it by country. And then once I picked the country, then I Googled. I was a a big-time Googler. (laughs) And I tried to pick things that I didn't know anything about. Um, I would say that, you know, if you want to do something for work and you send them a resume and say, I don't know how to do this, Mm -hmm. um, they won't hire you. But as a volunteer, it's like, oh, okay, you can come do that. Um, (laughs) So at that time, 2004, there weren't very many books. There wasn't much available. So it really was just Googling and try to sort it out myself and figure out, okay, where's this one? Is this something that I think I'd want to do? And I'd say I still do that. I mean, I still Google a lot. I've probably got way more resources now after um, all this time so I can go back and check the list that I've collected over time. Mm, and are these resources available to others on your website or um, anything? On, yeah, actually, on, I've just decided I teach a class here in Seattle, and, and I have a big list that I give the class, and then I've decided, oh, you know, I should make this available to other people because I'm gearing mine towards more inexpensive projects. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm finding that people don't necessarily have a lot of money to do the volunteering, and but they still want to volunteer. So, yeah, I'm I'm putting together the CD. It's it's it could be available today. Hmm. <laughs> the website gets gets set up correctly. Um, but otherwise, there's lots of lots more books. Um, Frommers has a book on volunteering. Um, Lonely Planet has a book on volunteering. Um, it's just there's probably like five different books now that have volunteer projects, mm-hmm. and they'll give an explanation of what it's about and tell you the price, and you can get a sense of of what the project would be like. Now, Joyce, when you started this, you decided to do this solo for 
a year. Is that still the case? Have uh, you partnered with anyone in any of these uh, recent volunteerism trips? And uh, what advice would you have for the solo traveler looking to do some of these activities? Um, I, I do still go solo. And the reason I go solo is because I really want to make sure it's my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I, don't, I don't want to have to compromise. And I really, what I've noticed is when I travel with somebody, I spend time talking to them and I might miss something. Hmm. And if I'm by myself, then I'm really in a position where I need to gather my own resources and find out the best thing for me to do. And it seems like I have really rich experiences that way with local people. Hmm. Um, Volunteering is interesting because it's not like you're alone all the time. I mean, if I go someplace to volunteer for a month, I'm like the one trip I just took to Ukraine, I stayed with a family there. Mm. So I'm with the mother and her kids, and um, they want to make sure that I'm having a good trip. So, you know, they'll give me help. And then the group that I'm volunteering with, I've got all of them that I'm also befriending, actually, and getting to know. So it doesn't ever really feel alone Mm -hmm. um, at all. You know, you know, I I don't consider it particularly brave. I I think it's kind of selfish um, because I really want to get as much as I can into my heart. Sure, you know? sure. You know, I mean, I I remember when I lived abroad, um, I traveled uh, by myself, and, and most of the time, you know, I was a student, so I was poor, <laughs> and and I I I traveled to places where I had friends, but uh, I do remember several occasions uh, taking a train from uh, Vienna to uh, Budapest and you know I met just the most wonderful people traveling by myself and I ended up staying with this family uh, who was traveling from South Africa um, and uh, and we we became uh, incredible friends from and I actually roomed with their mother um, the the, the uh, my colleagues or you know my my peers mother um, and I just had the most wonderful time but when you do travel alone you you actually um, have I think a better opportunity to to meet extraordinary people and just really uh, friends for life so it is a it's a very enriching uh, experience. Yeah, and I I think it's actually good for the people in a country to see that um, you know a woman in her fifties is comfortable coming there to travel by herself. It's, mm-hmm. it's not a bad thing. It's like I'm, sometimes I get looks like you're here alone. And it's <sighs> like yeah, I'm here alone, and I just smile. It's like happy me. <laughs> <laughs> What what has been um, one of the most enriching volunteer travel experiences you've had? Um, wow, They're, they all have a, a different flavor that um, has taught me things. Um, probably um, Bali, maybe because I was there for five months. Mm, I love um, Bali. Yeah, and the thing that was really good about Bali is that to have their balanced culture where, you know, there's yin and yang and it's not so much an avoidance of what's bad. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just a kind of recognition of that. So that was kind of the base. And the project I was working on was actually really kind of alarming. Um, It was trying to save the orangutans and also the rainforest. And so while I'm there in kind of this peaceful country, um, I'm learning about how 
they're taking down the rainforest and how a product called palm oil that I knew nothing about is responsible for that and the orangutans. And it's my job as a volunteer to figure out how to let people know about it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I liked that because I was getting just so much that I was learning. It's like learning about the environment, um, trying to figure out how I could best um, educate people so that we could do it a different way, um, and not to lose my cool. <laughs> mm. Now, Joyce, I am curious if you've had any really challenging moments on some of these volunteer uh, trips that you've taken, any scary encounters or anything like that that you'd be willing to share? You know, the good news is there's only been one. Hmm. Um, and it was on the Trans-Siberian Express um, going from Beijing to Moscow. And it was the first night. Um, I was in my berth with a husband, a wife, and their friend. And, of course, they didn't speak English, and I didn't speak Mongolian. And it seemed okay. Her husband seemed really scary to me. He was staring at me in, in a bad way. Mm. And I tried to find another room because I just felt like it was dangerous. And I stayed out of there as long as I could, just kind of knowing. And when I went to bed, I was like, don't, just don't go to sleep. Don't go to sleep. Well, you know, good luck. Um, and I was awoken by him coming on top of me. And it oh. was just crazy. It was just crazy. And so I, my reaction was to shove him off and just start screaming. I'm pretty sure I screamed and yelled for about 15 minutes Mm. um, trying to figure out what to do. You know, it was like, okay, I'm in a foreign country. Nobody speaks English. What am I supposed to do? What if they throw me off the train? Um, So, yeah, that that was a um, really scary experience. The wife wasn't saying anything. The friend wasn't saying anything. The Mm. conductors were next door. I'm sure they heard me screaming. They didn't come in to ask me. It was all very much you're on your own Joyce you're going to have to figure this thing out yourself um, oh my god and, and how, how did that end I mean, well I, I had actually been knitting on the um, train and that's all I had I took my knitting needle and I was just like waving it around in my hand doing a you know Clint Eastwood make my day mm-hmm. um, you know like if you come back here and it, that scared me in itself to, for me to have that much anger um but that did it so um he stayed in his place and as soon as i could i got up and left and thank goodness they were only there for one night <sighs> i think my mm. voice still shakes when i talk about it i i i uh, well i'm sitting here i'm horrified um yeah. joyce and but you know in 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 it, you know in that situation i mean certainly when you travel alone um, there are th- some things that you can do to to uh, you know for safety and security reasons, but in that situation, honestly, I, I don't. It, it doesn't seem like there was anything you could have done, or that could have been done to avoid such conflict. Um, uh, but but you know, as far as traveling alone, I mean, as as one who traveled alone myself. Um, you know, I know not to wear jewelry or, or things that would cause um, someone to, you know, 
would cause attention uh, in in any place from Germany to Paris to Vienna to China, where I, I lived for a little while. Um, and but uh, but certainly that was. Um, I'm proud of you. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I was, um, I don't know. I still wonder, you know, did I do the right thing just staying there? But there wasn't anybody to tell. Yes. I mean, there wasn't, you know, it's like nobody's going to care, Joyce. Um, you know, everybody else in my train car was Chinese. So, um, yeah, it was an experience for sure. Well, it, as you said, you know, thank goodness there was the only, that was the only time. Yeah, yeah, I know. That's, I mean, that's wonderful. So, um, and it worked out all right. It was okay. Well, that's, that's the important thing, and it hasn't stopped you from uh, continuing uh, to uh, uh, take on these volunteer experiences. And that uh, gives us a chance to really talk about uh, volunteerism and really kind of creating a new vocation for others and you do a lot of mentoring and sharing your travel experiences with those who might be inclined to do this talk to us about that well um when i came home and whenever i say anything to people they're always like but how did you plan this how did you find your Mm -hmm. places and so i think maybe because i used to be a teacher i thought well we need way more americans out and we need them out getting to know other people. And so I just decided to start this class um, where I would teach people about what to expect, um, how to find good projects, what to look for. And um, it's really a joy. Um, when somebody writes me and says, you know, I just got back from volunteering in Thailand, thank you. Um, I have a woman who actually three years ago took my class and she just now started a a charity in Thailand, which is incredible. You know, Mm. it's just like, wow, um, hooking up volunteers. So I'm game to help anybody who wants to find, you know, the right thing, the right place, um, because there's so many opportunities. I mean, it's endless. I'm overwhelmed by how many projects that I continue to find um, when I'm looking. Mm-hmm. Well, there's there there's a ton of need out there, and and that's why uh, we decided to um, showcase and feature people like yourselves who have a heart for our world and and the the people in it. And um, and so we're ha- we're very happy you could join us today and. Um, we're honored that uh, you allowed us to feature you as our traveling angel. And uh, and thank you for everything that you are doing to make this world uh, a better place. Where can people learn more about um, you, Joyce, and, and the resources that will be on your website and, and, and also your book? I know you, you chronicled your first travel adventures in, in, a, in a book. Um, and uh, and I'd like to share with our audience where they might be able to uh, to pick that up and learn about you as well. Um, the um, the website for the book is smilingattheworld.com, which is the name of the book. So they can go there and read about me and shoot me an email if they've got questions about something. Um, the website that I'm just putting together, and I'm smiling because... Um, I was working hard to try to get it done, (laughs) and it seems to have come up as um, inexpensive volunteerism, 
and, and it's up, mm-hmm. but you have to misspell um, for now. Um, expensive. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, how did that happen? Um, the E is missing um, today in expensive. Gotcha. But I would hope that by the afternoon, if you went to inexpensivevolunteerism.com, um, you could see the CD there and order that. And, and again, just just gather information about the process. I'm what I'd like to do is to just make this easier for people and less expensive. Um, and I'd also like to educate people so that they kind of know what to expect, so that they're good volunteers, mm-hmm. um, so they know they're not going on a tour. They're, they're going to help in a little way. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us on our show today. And, uh, thank you. And thank you again for I'm everything honored. you're doing in the world. Well, it's, it's truly our pleasure. Joyce Major, the author of uh, Smiling at the World and uh, our volunteer extraordinaire. <laughs> joins us today. Thank you very much, Joyce. Thank you. Well, everybody, farewell for now from Vancouver, and we'll see you on the air again next week, same time, same frequency. Until then, strive to leave positive footprints one step at a time, and go world! Go world!